Okay, so let's move to the next lecture and in this lecture we are going to talk about the complication of infective endocarditis. So what are the cardiac manifestations? So you'll see that there might be valvular insufficiency. Common cause of death is valvular insufficiency in infective endocarditis. And then there is perivalvular abscess. So perivalvular abscess if there, then you have to think about infectious endocarditis and uh, conduction abnormalities. Myocotic aneurysm is another thing. Okay. So valvular insufficiency, perivalvular abscess, conduction abnormalities, and mycotic aneurysm. These are the four cardiac manifestations of the infective endocarditis. Neurological complications of infective carditis includes the embolic stroke, cerebral hemorrhage, brain abscess, and acute encephalopathy or meningoencephalitis. So embolic stroke, cerebral hemorrhage, brain abscess, acute encephalopathy, and meningoencephalitis. Renal complications include renal infarction, glomerulonephritis, and drug-induced acute interstitial nephritis from therapy. So renal infarction, glomerulonephritis, acute drug-induced interstitial nephritis. Now, because of the therapy of the infective endocarditis can lead to this, okay? Interstitial nephritis now. Musculoskeletal could be vertebral osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and musculoskeletal abscess. Vertebral osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and musculoskeletal abscess. So, if a patient is coming to you with fever, petechiae, and intravenous drug abuse, do remember, very, very important point to diagnose infective endocarditis is palatal petechiae. Okay? So if a patient is coming to you with fever, palatal petechiae, and history of intravenous drug abuse, and there is a holosystolic murmur at the apex, all these features suggest of infective endocarditis involving the mitral valve. So intravenous drug abuse history is also important. Think about infective endocarditis. The headache and lethargy, neck stiffness, such as the subarachnoid hemorrhage, secondary to the rupture of the mycotic aneurysm. So... Let's suppose a 26-year-old main patient comes to you in the emergency department and uh, he is having headache and for which he took aspirin but still he is not feeling well and since last days, 10 days he is exhausted and he is an intravenous drug abuser. Now his temperature is 101. Along with that his pulse is 102 and uh, you see that needle track mark are present. Everything is okay except the few pedipers palatal petechiae you can see and also there is neck stiffness you see three by six holosystolic murmur at the apex lung are clear auscultation everything is fine there are no neurological symptoms what do you suspect in this patient first with the needle stick injury think about something related to the needle stick injury then there is holosystolic murmur think about mitral valve involvement see the temperature is high fever okay and pulse is high fever then you see the headache so with all these things you think about the infective endocarditis but not only infective endocarditis the patient is having headache how infective endocarditis can cause headache it can lead to stroke so stroke can occur because of the subarachnoid hemorrhage because the headache is so severe that it is not improving even after aspirin use so now you think about why this subarachnoid hemorrhage occurred maybe because of the aneurysm so yes because of rupture of the mycotic aneurysm, it occurs. Mycotic and infected arterial aneurysm can develop due to metastatic infective endocarditis. Okay, so since the infection metastasizes from the infective endocarditis and reach the brain, and you see that it affects the arteries and cause mycotic aneurysm, 
with septic embolizations of the localized vessel wall. See, in a vessel, there is vaso vessel rum. If something is stuck in there, it can lead to reduced blood supply of the wall of the vessel, making the wall loose and it is easy for it to convert it into an aneurysm. As soon as a little bit blood pressure rises, this aneurysm can rupture and cause severe headache in brain. Now, the septic embolization to the localized wall destruct the cerebral circulation. Intracerebral mycotic aneurysm can present with expanding mass with focal neurologic finding also or may not appear until the aneurysm is ruptured or stroke or subarachnoid hemorrhage occur. The diagnosis of the cerebral mycotic aneurysm can usually be confirmed by CT scan, CT not scan, angiography. So computed tomographic angiography is done. Management includes broad spectrum antibiotics. So you have to give broad spectrum antibiotics based on the blood culture and surgical intervention is needed since already subarachnoid hemorrhage has occurred. So you can go for either open or endovascular procedures. Now, patient with basilar artery occlusion. This could be a differential diagnosis, but in basilar artery occlusion, you see motor weakness, ataxia, and incoordination also, altered level of consciousness, facial weakness, dysphagia, dysartria, unilateral or bilateral gaze palsies. Next stiffness is more suggesting of subarachnoid hemorrhage. See, next stiffness is not only seen in meningitis, it can be seen in subarachnoid hemorrhage. This is very, very important point. If somehow your managers are getting irritated, it can lead to uh, next stiffness. And because of the subarachnoid hemorrhage, you can see this. In basilar artery occlusion, there will be motor signs and features and also altered level of consciousness. And since basilar artery is involved, you will see that facial weakness is there, dysphagia, dysarthria is there, tongue is involved, and unilateral bilateral gaze palsy can also occur. Now, why this is not a herpes simplex encephalitis? Because you see meningitis features and you see blood in the subarachnoid region also, like CSF also. So, it is characterized by acute onset that is less than one week. Fever, headache, seizures, saltamental status, focal neurologic features also present. Hemiparesis, cranial involvement can occur. But a patient features are for more than one week. You also see heart murmur, drug abuse history. And that make infective endocarditis that is mycotic aneurysm more common, more likely than the herpetic encephalitis. Herpes, you'll see acute onset less than one week with features of neurologic involvement as well as saltamental status and seizures. Also, sometimes cranial are involved now. Progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy is a demyelinating illness of the central nervous system. Occurs in immunosuppressed patient, especially the AIDS patient. So this progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy uh, occurs in immunosuppressed AIDS patient. It is a demyelinating syndrome because of the JC virus, polyoma virus, JC virus, what we say, and present with neurologic deficit, including the hemiparesis, gait ataxia, and visual symptoms. Also, alternative status. So... There is hemiparesis, gait ataxia, and visual symptoms, ultimatal status. But this patient is not immuno immunocompromised, so you should rule out. And also, fever is not typical. Like, fever is not seen in progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And you see that this patient is, was having fever. So you can rule out progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Remember, you will see neurologic deficit, hemiparesis, gait ataxia, and visual symptom there. Now, valvular insufficiency in infective endocarditis is primarily due to destruction of the valve leaflet. Not because of the papillary muscle rupture. Papillary muscle rupture after occurs as a complication of post-MI. Not the vulvar inf insufficiency because of the uh, infective endocarditis. Okay. Now, 
yeah so this is this also you can rule out because there was no history of hypotension or pulmonary edema or cardiogenic shock or something which can occur because of the valvular insufficiency because of papillary muscle rupture so the answer for this question was mycotonarism can occur in the cerebral and systemic circulation due to septic embolization localized vessel wall destructions as a complication of infective endocarditis intracerebral mycotic aneurysm can present as an expanding mass with focal neurologic findings only focal not generalized not systemic nothing like that with aneurysm rupture and subarachnoid hemorrhage leading to severe headache and also you can find neck stiffness the basic point which you should remember from this question is neck stiffness can occur in subarachnoid hemorrhage in herpes you will not see in herpes it is acute onset less than one week and also drug abuse history and overall history is relevant with this there's no sexual history nothing like that so you can rule out herpes yeah that's about this question the complication of infective endocarditis now let's talk about the multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 syndrome so in multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 you'll see that there is pituitary adenoma it is seen in 10 to 20 percent of the patient there is primary hyperparathyroidism where you see in more than 90 percent of the patient and then there is a pancreatic or a gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumor which is seen in 60 to 70 percent of the patient so in men pituitary adenoma is pretty rare 10 to 20 percent cases primary hyperparathyroidism is very common more than 90 percent pancreatic and the gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumor is also seen in 60 to 70 percent what are the clinical manifestations of the pituitary adenoma so if adenoma is secreting prolactin or growth hormone or ACTH or maybe non-functional tumor so secretion of those hormones and next is the mass effect leading to the headache visual defect next is the primary hyperparathyroidism symptoms so because of the multiple parathyroid adenomas or parathyroid hyperplasias you see symptoms you see that blood calcium level is very high and when calcium is high there is polyuria there are chances of kidney stones and there is decreased bone density because blood is uh, the calcium is coming from the bones so you see bone density is low stones are there in the kidney or maybe polyuria so these can suggest features of primary hyperparathyroidism and pancreatic and gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors you can see gastrinoma so in case of gastrinoma because of high gastrine high pepsin you will have recurrent peptic ulcers because of insulinoma you might have hypoglycemic episode because of vipoma you might have secreted diarrhea hypokalemia and hypochlorohydria that is low chloride low potassium but secreted diarrhea in glucagonoma you see weight loss necrolytic migratory erythema and hyperglycemia so yeah uh, let's suppose let's take an example so if patient comes to you with hypercalcium and the calcium is very high and there you see that there is elevated parathyroid level that is consistent with the primary hyperparathyroidism and a light of a young age and also re history of gastric ulcers and history of family history of the parathyroid or pituitary disease you should think about these are the features of the multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 you see there, there there are three p's so pancreas and all those things so you see zollinger ellison syndrome gastrinomas pituitary adenomas prolactinomas can also occur and also additional finding is multiple cutaneous lipomas so remember in men syndrome you can see multiple cutaneous lipomas as well when do we do parathyroidectomy in men so indication for parathyroidectomy in men one syndrome similar to those for sporadic primary hyperparathyroidism includes the symptomatic hypercalcemia so if someone is having hypercalcemia and you see the patient is having symptoms of that then you should think about the like patient was having excessive urination and bone pain and something like that 
then you should think about giving uh, doing parathyroidectomy or if the calcium level is more than equal to 1 milligram per deciliter above the normal range so if calcium level is more than equal to 1 milligram per deciliter above the normal range normal calcium is 8.4 to 10.2 and if you see it is more than 10.2 that is 11.2 or something then you go for parathyroidectomy or if you see there is an organ complication such as osteoporosis kidney involvement leading to chronic kidney disease or nephrolithiasis or there is increased risk of complications such as urinary calcium excretion is more than equal to 400 milligram per day so if urinary calcium excretion is more than than more than 400 milligram per day then you go for parathyroidectomy patients age less than 50 likely develop there are high chances of developing the complication later so that patient can also undergo, undergo parathyroidectomy okay men one typically present with relatively younger age most patients should be offered surgery okay the patient with men one syndrome have multiple parathyroid adenomas therefore require subtotal that is you have to remove three and half portion of the gland okay or maybe more than that so because it involves multiple parathyroid and there are parathyroid adenomas a lot of parathyroid adenomas total parathyroidectomy with auto transplant into a muscle pocket can also be needed so you can also go for total parathyroidectomy and auto transplant into a muscle pocket just remove it and re uh, fix one parathyroid in the muscle tissue that can also be done just to remove uh, just to may or neutralize the complications calcitonin and metanephrine assays was if they will confuse you with this testing but don't get confused because they are used for the screening of medullary thyroid cancers and pheochromocytoma respectively so calcitonin for medullary thyroid cancers and metanephrine for pheochromocytoma these are the parts of men 2 not the men 1 okay and Zoligomerelitsen syndrome is characterized by where you check for the serum gastrin level but uh, gastrin level will be elevated due to the hypercalcemia and uh, mm, uh, due to the proton pump inhibitors use so you don't have to measure that here okay measurement of the gastric level should be deferred until the patient is normal calcemic and has to discontinue acid reduce for two weeks at least for two weeks you should ask the patient that calcium level should normalize for two weeks then we will check for your gastric level and also you stop the ppi after two weeks we will check the gastric level then only you can figure out now let's talk about the men 2 syndrome men 2 syndrome i mean not the men 2 specifically just the classification of multiple endocrine neoplasia so in type 1 you see that there is primary hyperparathyroidism i've already told you adenomas or hyperplasias pituitary tumors such as prolactinomas or visual defects and pituitary pancreatic tumors especially the carcinomas and type 2a there is uh, type 2 is consistent of two that is a and b so a constitute of the medullary thyroid cancer that is the calcitonin is there then there is two P's, pheochromocytoma and primary hyperparathyroidism. And type 2B includes the medullary thyroid cancer, calcitonin, pheochromocytoma and mucosal neuromas and morphinoid habitus. So do remember, in the type 1, there are three P's, PPP. In type 2, there are two P's. And in type 1, there is only one P. So these P's are replaced with M. Okay. So in type 2, there is one M. But in type 2B, there are two M. Okay. So what are the three P's in type 1? Primary hyperparathyroidism, pituitary tumors, pancreatic tumors. What one P is removed here? So the one P which is removed is the primary hyperparathyroidism is already there. Pheochromocytoma is a P which is added and uh, two P's are removed that is a hyperparathyroid, uh, the pituitary and pancreas is removed. So there is this uh, medullary thyroid cancer. 
this medullary thyroid cancer is still there pheochromocytoma is still there but you remove the hyperparathyroidism in case of 2b and you add mucosal neuromas and marfanoid habitus so yeah this is what you see in men 2b so this is it for this lecture thank you so much for listening